it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the South Bay Show, Manhattan Beach Chamber 360. On June 25th, 2021, live, love, laugh, and leave a legacy. That is what we do here in the South Bay of Los Angeles, and it's a beautiful place to do just that. The South Bay Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Beach Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber of Commerce has been serving the community since 1941. It is an association of businesses, other entities, and individuals organized to encourage a strong local economy and quality of life by promoting commerce, sound government, and an informed membership and community. I'm your host, Joe Terry, and you can read all about our program at facebook.com forward slash The South Bay Show. Persistence, passion, principle, and purpose, that's what we talk about here on The South Bay Show. Joining us as co-host, the CEO and president of the Manhattan Beach Chamber, Kelly Stroman. Hey, Kelly, how are you today? Good morning, Joe. Happy Friday. I'm fantastic. It's a beautiful day (laughs) in Manhattan Beach. Yes, yes, yes. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful day in the neighborhood. I I don't like to sing. Uh, (laughs) You don't want me singing either. Um, Okay. Didn't we all grow up on that? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Absolutely. Won't you be my neighbor? Um, oh, gosh, if life could go back to being that simple again, wouldn't that be fantastic? Right, right. Unbelievable. Did you have a nice Father's Day? Yes. Well, Father's Day was amazing, uh, special. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's always special when you're, when you're with your children. I'm, I'm blessed to be uh, uh, with my oldest daughter, and her fiance, and uh, yeah, it was great. It was fun. Nice, excellent. <laughs> well, um, that that is a nice way. Can you believe the year is almost half over? I, I, everybody I talk to just feels like we have just blinked our eyes on twenty twenty one, and it. Right. Uh, do you feel that way too? I for us, it's the lack of. Uh, you know, well, initially in the first part of the the first few months of the year, we were thinking, are we going to do anything? Is are the are the holidays going to happen again? And now they're starting to happen, and so I imagine that the last half of the year will be filled with uh, activity after activity after activity, and in a very special way. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm that excited. is very, very, very true. Um, 
we had our first big in-person activity um, on Wednesday night. And I have to say, it was a huge gathering success, lots of happiness. We um, officially uh, did the ribbon cutting for Culture Brewing, the first tap room in Manhattan Beach. Now, they opened last September after about two years of construction and a lot of construction headaches and pandemic setbacks. They opened for what they called over-the-counter, over-the-rail sales, so they could only literally sell beer. Um, they have, they have, gosh, about 12 different flavors of beer, uh, wonderful beer. Um, and they could only sell cans of beer or T-shirts or whatever, literally over the outer counter of their building. <laughs> you couldn't even walk in. You couldn't taste beer. So it was kind of like blind beer buying. BBB, blind beer buying. Um, right. <laughs> literally. You could go up and they're like, well, it's a little fruity or it's herby or it's this or it's that. Yeah, this is our most popular one. And people did. They bought. Um, and then they returned to buy more because it is so good. And then in January, they – well, actually not January, uh, March, they were kind of able to open – um, partially, you know, um, p- pandemic partial. I'm doing all the alliterative this morning. Um, <laughs> and, you know, kind of starting to let people taste, do a little thing. And uh, we patiently waited um, for all the guidelines and the restrictions to lift on June 15th. And mm-hmm. uh, we marched out of the box big time um, with our first gathering at Culture Brewing to uh, cut the ribbon and have a fun mixer for people to gather if they are ready to do that. Um, network, say hello. And you know what? I, gosh, we had a couple hundred people. It was a huge success. We had the city council there. We had um, all the reps from the elected officials and so many business leaders and owners and entrepreneurs in the South Bay show up. But it was really interesting, Joe, to – See people in person that you've been seeing on Zoom for 16 months, uh, and in some cases you've you've only met them on Zoom, right? There's people, there's a couple new people that are new members, or there was there's one new rep for um, Assemblyman Al Marasucci that started during the pandemic. I have only seen like from his neck up on Zoom for you know the last year and a half, and when I arrived, I knew he was going to be there to present like a, you know, a scroll to um, Culture Brewing. And I'm looking going, I think that's Aaron. I think it's Aaron. And then he stands up, he's much taller. He's much different, you know, like, his, you know, because you can see like the whole body, the shoulders, everything, you know. Right, and right. Uh, it was super fun. And it was his first ribbon cutting. He'd never done one, so he was all excited about it. But um, And then there was so much of that, people going, oh, oh, I didn't quite recognize you, like in person, or oh, you don't have a mask on. Anyways, it was, you know, um, mask-free for those who were vaccinated. And right. I have to say, people were just so happy to be there. It was, of course, a beautiful evening. It's a very indoor-outdoor type of um, uh, building, and there's outdoor seating also, uh, you know, in, in, like in the street there, like all the other restaurants. And mm-hmm. we had so much fun. We had a little guitar player, you know, a little live music. And those taps were flowing with um, just ice-cold, <laughs> delicious beer the entire night. And the really, taps were flowing. 
I just, it, it was so happy. I got so many calls yesterday, so many emails and texts just going, oh, my gosh, we're back. We're, that was so much fun. And just the buzz in the air and everybody, you know, the owners of Culture Brewing, which are from uh, San Diego, from like the Encinitas and Solano Beach area, that's where their first two locations mm-hmm. are. They came mm-hmm. up to join in and they were like, wow, you guys, you know, Manhattan Beach knows how to do this. I'm like, that's right. <laughs> so um, we had fun, 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 fun. Um, super excited, you know, to do that. So um, I keep telling people, if you're ready to get out and, you know, network and, and say hello in person, we're ready to greet you. You know, that is kind of my new motto. Because, again, not everybody's quite comfortable yet, you know, and I respect that. So. Right. Um, right. Anyways, um, got a few other things happening that I want to share with everybody. Yeah. Um, we are still, you know, we're, a couple, we're still going to do a few online events because um, sometimes the online things are a little bit easier for people um, to access and gather, and people are still kind of, you know, merging back into in person. So we do have a women's networking event. Um, our quarterly uh, women's networking on the heels of the Phenomenal Women um, event back in uh, March. It's this Wednesday, June 30th from 12 to 1 on Zoom. So you can, you know, grab your lunch, um, whatever you want to do, you know, on your lunch hour, Zoom in. And we're going to have Dana Old. She's a fabulous um, young lady who has started her own consulting company. She worked in marketing for Red Bull forever she is a she is i mean talk about red bull energy she's got it and she will energize and we're just going to allow people to network via zoom just to speed networking um she's going to pump us up with some real motivational thoughts and um, you can go on to our website manhattanbeachchamber.com and register in advance for the zoom link for the women's networking event wednesday the 30th from 12 to 1 p.m. Uh, we would love to see every woman, uh, whether you're a chamber member or not, come and join us. So that is on Wednesday. And then this week, drum roll please, um, this um, tomorrow, Saturday, June, <laughs> June, there you go, love it, uh, June 26th. We have our local winner, Hunter Williams, the winner of the YEA, Young Entrepreneurs Academy, Saunders Award, is competing on the national level tomorrow, um, and he is representing Manhattan Beach with his company called Brushed, and he just completed his junior year at Bishop Montgomery. And he was our winner in our Shark Tank style pitch um, back in uh, late April. And he is so excited to represent us. He has, his company Brushed is an online marketplace for uh, men and women who want to create the, like waves in their hair. And he has these products, he's curated these products. He's a smart young man. And he's going to be pitching nationally um, for possibly um, the top knot of America's next young entrepreneur. So we are super excited um, for 
him. Um, you can register in advance on Eventbrite. Just type in Young Entrepreneurs Academy, and it uh, doesn't cost anything. You'll get the link. It's a national link. We're not in control of that link necessarily. It comes from Rochester, New York. Um, you can watch Hunter root him on. He's competing in the second round, um, which should be about um, about 10.30 our time here. So we're very excited. Um, very, very excited for Fantastic. him and, and wish him luck. Wonderful young man, great idea, and just a really good, genuine, you know, person. So we're very excited um, for him. And um, that, those are the big, those are the big, big, big um, details. Um, school's out. Everybody got out pretty much last week. Um, all the right. graduates, you know, our junior guards have started back at the beach. We are so excited about that, and I know a lot of parents are, the kids are. That's a rite of passage um, in, you know, this area to qualify and be able to take the junior guards program through the L.A. County lifeguard system, all ages, and uh, you see the kids riding their bikes, you know, to the beach in the morning, and I'm so happy that things are opening up and we're able to get back on track. Right. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. And I'm very it's excited time. talking about kids. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> excited for our guest today. Talk about kids and youth and juvenile, you know, uh, rules and laws and advocacy for school, you know, IEP programs, all sorts of good things. I can't wait. Um, to um, have a really wonderful discussion with our guest today. All right. Well, uh, Kelly, I'm ready. Uh, who's our guest today? All right, Joe, let's do it. Our guest today is Allison Pollen-Steros. I call her Allie. I've known her for many, many years. Um, our kids played soccer together. So Allie is a seasoned and relentless criminal defense lawyer and former adjunct law professor with 25 years of legal experience. She's also a very protective mother of two grown kids. As a deputy district attorney in Los Angeles County for over 16 years, Allie tried dozens of cases to verdict and trained other deputy district attorneys. As an adjunct law professor for several years, she taught constitutional criminal procedure to law students from a practical perspective. While a DA, or deputy DA, I should say, Allison was responsible for training and educating law enforcement agencies on Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment constitutional issues, changes in law, police report writing, and effective courtroom testimony. But criminal law is only part of her experience, concerned about the devastating impact and vicious cycle facing young adult offenders caught up in the criminal justice system. In 2013, she shifted careers and moved into the education realm. She taught high school in a Title I inner city high school as a credentialed teacher while pursuing a master's degree, excuse me, master's degree in education psychology with school counseling uh, from Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. In 2017, she opened her own private life law practice in Southern California, combining her past career as a prosecutor, navigating the criminal justice system with her more recent experience understanding the interplay between the criminal justice, education, and mental health arenas. In addition to adult criminal cases, Allie specializes in helping adolescents and young adults traverse difficult times. That's an interesting two words there, difficult times. 
she handles juvenile criminal cases, school discipline, and the K through 12 and post-secondary level, as well as Title IX cases representing college students across California to ensure that they are treated fairly and receive all necessary and required due process protections. Um, Allie, welcome to the show. It is such a pleasure to have you on this Friday morning. Thank you for having me, and thank you for having me, Joe. Thank you, Allie, for joining us. Uh, Well, first of all, we want to hear a little bit about your experience in the criminal justice system as a, a deputy district attorney, because we, most people, thankfully, rarely have any contact with the criminal justice system, because as we all know, Allie, contact with the system can be devastating, and it can be like uh, a well that you fall down and you never get out of. Tell us a little bit about that and about your your experience with that. Well, I would say the criminal justice system is daunting from an outside perspective, and I agree with that. Um, and what I don't want to do is make today about all of these horrible things that are going on in our world because it is Friday and we are here moving through COVID to make <laughs> things better. <laughs> right. right. So I want to approach it and actually say there are so many changes going on in the criminal justice system right now that are allowing us to take a different approach. And I think the last several months, several years have actually shed light on the fact that change is necessary. And you're seeing legislative change being implemented every single day. So last night I actually gave a talk, a seminar, a webinar to the California Association of Criminal Justice. And the focus was all on diversion and restorative justice programs that are being implemented in district attorneys and prosecuting offices across all of California. Um, And it is pretty amazing what is out there and how when you actually take a look at an individual for being a human, you realize they're not a criminal or they're not what we previously thought as a criminal. Um, You know, as I say, one, one mistake does not a bad person make. And a lot of us make mistakes. The issue is what's that line between making a mistake and what that idea is of what is criminal. And in the kid world, it's the same thing, right? Kids get open container tickets. They get Mm. fake ID tickets and they don't want to tell their parents. And now all of a sudden they just changed the law. But even two years ago, if you get one of those tickets, you lose your license for a year, your insurance rates triple. So the kids say, oh, it's just $450 ticket, I'll pay it. And then all of a sudden, now they've got something on their record, and there's a huge collateral impact. And so the criminal justice system is in the process of changing, but there are a lot of antiquated concerns out there that that directly address, you know, what you said, what what really is going on. And I think the most important thing is to reach out to someone who knows the system, and that's kind of – where you, you know, get an upper hand or at least a level hand, a level playing field is to communicate with someone who can negotiate how to, what this ticket means, what the implications are. And let's say you have a a fake ID ticket or you have a drinking in public ticket. Well, then there's all these mechanisms now to get them off your record. So let's figure out what those are. Even if you're the parents and you're like, oh my God, I just learned my kid got arrested three times, but they never told me. Let's see what we can do. Like, there's always things that can be done. And that's the benefit right now of our system changing and growing right now. It, it sounds so positive. That sounds so positive because 
it is it, it reminds me of the uh I'm I'm not an extensively traveled person, but I did have the uh uh benefit of uh visiting Switzerland uh many years ago and having some friends in Europe and uh there is a different attitude. I mean uh the classic attitude is is is, is the classic example is Amsterdam where they have, you know, legalized many drugs and of course there's uh, other activities that are legal there and the 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 society is gentler in a way to those people that have a problem with addiction the society is more i would i would say to to find a word that could be related to america the society is less combative about people that perhaps have fallen into uh, addiction uh, with drugs and so forth. It isn't so much a criminal justice problem in Amsterdam. It's a health problem, a, a public health issue, and that makes it less combative. <laughs> and I think you um, actually hit the nail on the head. And, and, you know, to add a word to your adjectives, I would say compassion. And it is exactly what you addressed, which is kind of the path of, of, my, of my adult life, shall we say. I mean, I, to give you a little background, I grew up in a town much, much like Manhattan Beach. Um, I grew up in Pacific mm. Palisades, near, near the mm. ocean. Some people had money, but there was a lot of busing into our schools. And mm. there were 10 deaths in 16 months in my high school, 10 of them. Ten. All of them were drug and alcohol related. It was a crazy, crazy time in the late 80s. And it really inspired me to go in to become a DA to better understand what I was doing. All of them, most of them were DUIs where people were killed, um, good friends of mine. And it shaped me. It really did. And I said, I have to understand it. And so I went in and as a DA, I did a lot of DUI work and I agencies on implementing um, checkpoints and training on FSTs and just raising awareness of, of both the issues that go on from the streets as well as the issues that go on, you know, in the home. And it led me to this path. Well, once I was a DA, I started doing a lot of drug cases. And as Kelly will remember, because I think she's known me for a very long time when I was pregnant with my daughter, who's now 19, um, I was put on bed rest and I went, got put, I, they pulled me out of a trial assignment and I got put in drug court mm -hmm. to reduce, to keep my stress level down. And I, mm -hmm. it opened up my eyes to how human the defendants were, right? The criminals, how all they wanted to do was get better and have a productive life, but they didn't have the support to do so. And so that right. started a series of legislation that allowed for treatment instead of um, incarceration. And that started in the, you know, there were, there were programs in place, but in 2001 was the big one, Prop 36, that was, you know, voted on by the California voters that put in place a drug program for someone who had a, a nonviolent prior history and said, why are we throwing people that have a drug addiction in jail because they're possessing a controlled substance because they have an addiction? And so that is actually even more. And now they're realizing that so much of the drug use is related to mental health. And that's when I started seeing this in the court system. 
Sorry, go ahead. Okay. Well, I this this is the point where I, I throw this other experience. I I grew up in Chicago. Uh, I had several friends whose fathers and or mothers were police officers. Um, these are black, brown, and African American police officers, and they were in this you know this system where they weren't you know uh, being that they were black and they were you know african american and they were uh, part of the quote unquote minority population but they did not like what they had to do sometimes because it was overarching it was it was non helpful it was it wasn't programs that children could go into or even young adults could go into that would actually help them they were just being everyone was going through the same door but the same door isn't appropriate for every single case especially where the case is more addictive addiction related and and not criminal related or at least not violent criminal related is it is it time, and, Allie? Is this happening all over the country? It is, and that's why I, it's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing, right? I ended, I was on, you know, what I call the the prosecution side of the table, the more conservative side of the table, even though I never espouse, you know, my position was always justice and fairness and looking at each case individually. But yes, there mm-hmm. is this, you know, you know, do, revolving door that was occurring, and so. To take what you're saying one step further, which is how I segued, is that we talk about it as an addiction issue, right? For instance, I was mm. in court recently with a case, and I had an individual who was arrested for indecent exposure. And mm. they wanted him to register as a sex offender. And when you dug mm. into his history, you learned that two years before, he had been home, and he was the victim of a home invasion robbery where he was pistol-whipped, left for dead, transported by air support to the hospital where he remained in a coma. He then came out. They never apprehended the suspects. So this is a Latino brown family. They don't have the resources. Mm. Because Mm. they didn't apprehend the suspects, the DA doesn't provide any counseling or support, nor does the police. Mm. And he developed an affinity for drinking to help him cope. And Mm. he ended up, you know, in a in a situation where he was completely intoxicated. So it's not the intoxication that's the issue. It's the mm-hmm. needing to understand the mental health behind why you turned to alcoholism and why you turned to alcohol to cope with what's going on. And so there's always that <sighs> issue. So when I approached the district attorney, I said, this is what's going on. He suffers from extreme PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And she said, well, I just thought he was an alcoholic as if that was different. And so that's kind of what my new degree segued into. Let's not just say this person's an alcoholic or addicted to oxy or addicted addicted to cocaine. The question is why we need to dig deeper. We need to explore it. We need to figure out what we can do to address the underlying cause so that we can properly treat this individual so that they're not just part of this revolving door system that you're mentioning. Well, we, we're excited, excited to make a transition. We want to find out about your new uh, um, uh, work uh, with Soros Law and education. But before that, I have to ask, 
how much of this or in what way does this new, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd death and how does all of this play into a change in how not only cops who I love, uh, I have many cops who are not only family friends, but I consider them fathers and mothers. But how, how, how has this allowed cops to get back to doing what they really want to do, which is catch the bad guys? I, I can tell you num- numerous stories coming up as a child when they said, I wish I had more time to catch the bad guys. I don't like corralling kids, <laughs> but please, we're going to make this transition. Is that a part of it, or is it is it a different orthogonal track in in the world of, of criminal justice? I think it's a little bit of both, right? Because mm. what's happening mm. is is that the definition of a bad guy is changing, mm. right? What 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 is a bad guy? What makes mm. someone bad, right? Mm. Are they addicted? Do they have mental health issues? led them to the streets and lost employment and now they're stealing in order to feed themselves right Mm -hmm. or stealing Mm -hmm. right does that mean Mm -hmm. that they're a bad guy you know what is a bad guy so i think yes does it play a role it plays it plays a tremendous role um i think it is so necessary and i wish that this uprising had happened so long ago. Um, Mm. And I know I may not necessarily be in the majority, but I, in the, you know, my kind of midlife crisis was I was seeing all this dysfunctionality going on, this disconnect going on Mm -hmm. Um, just, you know, personally, as I watched our kids grow up and all the issues that they had to deal with or their friends had to deal with, and then the worldly issues that were going on. And so my midlife crisis was going back to school and getting a degree in psychology a master's degree, mm-hmm. so that I can figure mm-hmm. out how to help this generation that they could go one way or they can go the other. And my aha moment was I was working um, in a local court in Torrance. I was the EDP deputy, the early disposition deputy. That meant I was in charge of every felony that was filed in our case came to my courtroom, and it was my responsibility to arraign the defendant and then try to resolve the case at the earliest stage before it went on to preliminary hearings or trial. And so I saw mm-hmm. upwards of, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 cases a day sometimes. But one case really stuck out. And it was a black who grew up in Compton, mm-hmm. and he was out of gangs, out of drugs. His mother watched him like a hawk. He had a great family support, although he was raised by a single mom. And he was going on to play D1 football, and it was his dream. And he was mm. out the summer before and, you know, right around with a bunch of guys. He was 18, and I think most of the rest of them were just under, so they were juveniles technically. Mm. And the group of them stole a bike from a garage of a house. And the garage was open, and it was right in the corner, and it was a $50 bike. That was the value of the bike. And because mm. the garage was attached to the house, he was arrested for a residential burglary. Because under the law, that that was allowed. And I didn't file that case. And I turned around in the courtroom on his arraignment, 
and I, the courtroom was packed. The mayor of Compton mm. was there. They're, they flooded the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And they turned around and said, this isn't right. I have to figure out a way to stop it before it gets to this point. Because the mere filing, he lost his scholarship. Everything. Right. He lost his scholarship. His life now took a different turn because he and a group of juveniles stole a $50 bike. And had it been on the street, it would have been a petty theft and it would have gotten diversion and it would have been done. But because the DA was able to file the residential burglary, it ruined his life. He was facing years in prison. And I said, this is not right. And that's what kind of led to this. And then while I was in my program, um, we took a cultural counseling program, which was exactly the issues going on. And I actually did it in Ecuador and in abroad. And we read a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it is a book um, by Paulo Freire, who was an educator out of Brazil. And his position was, until there is an uprising, until have their voices heard in a way that mm-hmm. is uncomfortable, that could even be violent, that is mm-hmm. change, things will not change. And the big analogy there is that our civil war, right? Until people mm-hmm. do something to show how mad they really are, how much they need to stand up, you're not going to see change. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I read that book in, you know, 2015 or 14. And then all of a sudden we see BLM and that's what this is, right? Yes, the right. looting is not okay, but it got, it got the point across finally, or at least mm-hmm. a little bit. It made steps in the right direction. So wow. here we are, <laughs> Kelly. Here we are. <laughs> I know. What do you do with that, guys? Let's talk about yeah. something happier. Let's talk about kids in the schools. Okay. I just before you do that, Allie, I just want to say thank you uh, for what you are doing because I, you know, I've sit here listening to you guys for the last fifteen twenty minutes, going, "Wow, we need more Allies in the world." Because you truly care, and the fact that you are looking at, I, I love what you said. Um, I think you said, you know, determining a, a mistake versus a criminal act, and and then looking back at the history and a couple of the examples you've given, and how, the, it, whatever the person, the juvenile, whomever it is, isn't just a bad person necessarily, or isn't just a criminal, isn't you know. And I think today there's such a, um, you know, it's just that the cancel culture is just real. Oh, just put them away or, oh, just get rid of them or, oh, he's, he or she is wrong, you know, and for you to pause and go, okay, wait a minute, what he or she did maybe is wrong or a criminal act, whatever, but let's look at the root of it. I, um, we, I've always liked you. (laughs) I've always known you're a dynamo, (laughs) but wow, we need more people. We need more alley in the world. Okay. Um, I had All to say right. that because I, I was like dying to say it for the last 10 minutes going, oh, my gosh, this is a, it's amazing. And we need more of that because uh, there's so many. And, you know, what, what, what hurts my soul is, you know, I, and you can talk about this in the schools, but early intervention and how if we can turn some of the, the cause, you know, um, around or identify the cause or for the first time help the person address the cause of, you know, of the problem um, can make such a difference, you know, later in their life too. So 
thank you for everything you're doing. Really, really remarkable. Well, thank you. I, you I really enjoy it. Yeah, that All was right. a commercial break for, Kleene- for Kleenex, by the way, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Heavy, heavy so, stuff let, for a Friday let, morning. You sure you wanted me to do this? Yes. No. Oh, my gosh. I, I told you, every Friday morning is just different. It, and Joe right. and I love it because the stories, the people, right. it's, I, and, and these conversations allow us to kind of, you know, peel back the layers, you know, peel back the, you know, the orange and underneath it is this, you know. So, no, we love it. So, okay. Um, what are you, um, what are you anxious to talk about? Schools, kids, um, you know, navigating all that process. You want to go there? Sure. Okay. Great. All right. Great. So, so I'm going to start that out one second. I'm going to start that out by just by saying, um, and you can take it what, much deeper because you are much more skilled at it, but there are, you know, so many students, uh, particularly, you know, I just can speak to Manhattan Beach, um, that um, are often in need of extra resources at school for whatever reason, and navigating that process, getting the testing, getting the district to even sometimes allow for that testing, there's all different levels versus the parent maybe knowing there's a problem of whatever sort and then paying for private testing uh, and then hopefully convincing the school to um, allow for extra help or resources. I know there's all different levels of that, but um, tell us what you are seeing and tell us how you can help. Okay, so here's what I'm going to tell you, and this isn't a sales pitch. This is because I work with schools all day long. Um, Manhattan Beach has the strongest and most compassionate special ed department that I work with on a regular basis. As I tell them, I actually encourage certain families to move into Manhattan Beach so that they can get treated with the respect that they need. They understand the need to provide resources, and they do. You know, granted, they are on a budget, like our schools are everywhere, but they really do try to maximize what they do for as many kids as they need to. Um, That being said, and this isn't Manhattan Beach, this is schools everywhere, there is a big disconnect between what schools are obligated to do and communicating their obligation to the families and the parents. And so parents end up very lost scrambling to find out what's going on instead of understanding that it is school's responsibilities to seek out, assess, and service students who have or may have disabilities that are impacting their ability to access the curriculum in school. And that doesn't just mean do well on a test. It means are you having trouble communicating? Are you having trouble socializing? Are you having trouble getting along with peers? Those are all school-related issues that school districts are responsible for making sure are taken care of. And so parents have a tendency, especially in our community and other affluent communities, to scramble to find all this outside testing. And then they come to the school and they say, so-and-so diagnosed my kid with ADHD, anxiety, depression, whatever it is. Put the student on an IEP, and I want you to pay for free counseling. I want you to pay for tests. I mean, I want you to pay for speech and language. School says, we're happy to evaluate, but we can't just rely on your outside test. And parents Mm. get all upset. And so it's actually 
better to go to the schools because there's steps of different levels of support that the schools can provide. They just, the parents just don't know it. And until they get into a crisis and come to the schools mad at them for dropping the ball, the schools are not coming back and saying, well, this is how it should work. And so there's this part of it is because they have so much going on, they don't have a chance to, you know, learn and stay up to date on all the new laws that are pertaining to special education or disabilities, but they need to, you know, get better at that. And parents need to go in and instead of just instantly getting mad at the school, they need to ask. And that's, that's the thing, right? Educators go into teaching, most of them, in order to help, help kids. Not even necessarily help families, but help kids, right? They're willing to take a lower-paying job to be involved in a system where kids are involved, which is amazing. And so if you all of a sudden accuse the teachers, the school, the administration of not helping, you have screwed up my kid 10 different ways. You have let my kid get bullied. You have, you have caused this. They get defensive. If you go to them and say, my kid's really struggling and I need your help and I need you to help me help them, their whole attitude changes. So my word to parents on this call is before you get mad and just assume they're not doing it right, ask them. After you want, you need to know who to ask. So I had a call on Friday with a very hysterical parent who's a teacher, you know, a lot of the teachers are not putting grades in, so the kids didn't know where they stood going into finals. And they reached out to the teacher, and the teacher said, if you turn in your one assignment and pass the final, you'll pass the class. And a lot of the kids are taking them pass fail. So this kid did that. This kid walked at graduation on Thursday. And on Friday, got a letter that said, sorry, you failed this class. You don't graduate. So you can imagine the parents were a little upset. And um, it was a matter of going to the right person at the district in order to get that fixed, right? The parents are like, immediately, I want to email the superintendent. The superintendent is a friend of mine. Like, superintendent isn't going to solve this problem. We need to figure out how to get you the right person. So sometimes my job is really just helping them negotiate that system and explaining the system to them because the schools don't explain the system. They don't explain the difference between what an IEP or individualized education plan is and what a 504 plan is. And that's part and parcel of what is necessary in order to create this collaborative situation between the schools and, and the families. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wonderful. <laughs> so, I mean, I can keep talking. There's a lot of information okay. out there and, you know, feel free to direct me on what specifically, you know, you think could be addressed. Well, we have, um, a uh, Soros Law. Tell me about what you do and what you try to accomplish with a new uh, set of clients at Soros Law. Tell me about your business. Okay. So my business is a combination of the two. So I handle criminal cases, all of them, but I have an emphasis on those involving the younger generation, meaning juveniles or young adults, and those that have an underlying or a related mental health condition, one that's known or unknown, right? My kid was really struggling, and that's why they did this. Or my, the adult is struggling, and that's why they did this. 
um, because I spend a lot of time connecting them up with resources, making sure they get the treatment, not just passing them through the system and getting them the best deal. My job is to help them and prevent them from returning to the system. And then once they get through that case, it's a matter of clearing up their record in the future so that this doesn't impact them. If they have a license, it doesn't matter. I'm not talking about a driver's license. I'm talking about um, financial licenses, real estate licenses, teaching licenses, you know, addressing these collateral consequences. And that oftentimes crosses over with school-based discipline. So what happens is, is students, whether they're in college or in K-12, get in trouble. They get into a fight in school and they punch another kid and now they're facing suspension or expulsion in the schools and they're facing criminal charges for doing what they did. That's mm-hmm. kind of like where my two worlds cross because there's a lot of criminal attorneys that understand the criminal law and there's education lawyers who understand the education law, but there's not a lot who understand the interplay between the two. So that's kind of the area that I really like to focus on. But then aside from that, I do a lot of education advocacy. I don't do litigation. I generally, with, with, I, with exception, I generally don't sue schools. If a parent wants to sue a school, I refer that out to another lawyer. But what I do is I come in, will work with the counseling team. I will work with the special education department to help them get the resources they need to create a plan to help them um, in the school system and also to, you know, give advice on how to handle certain situations if kids are being bullied, um, explain what school's responsibilities are specifically with bullying or whether your kid is the one who's being accused of bullying, making sure that they are treated fairly and given, you know, a proper fair hearing with respect to whatever is going on. kind of merge um, you know, there's a lot of um, talk there's a lot of problems there's a lot of focus on juvenile drug use in uh, the South Bay and yes. during I think um, and, and maybe you disagree but I think particularly during um, the you know the lockdown during the pandemic when everybody was at home either it escalated or we just saw it more. I, I don't know. Um, but there certainly is, and it seems I'm hearing, again, this is unquantified, but uh, that, you know, the ages are getting younger and younger. P- uh, kids are starting um, drug use of any type um, younger, you know, even down into like fifth grade and what have you. So let's talk, you know, because, again, it's chicken or egg, right? Are they starting to use drugs and then they start doing, you know, poorly um, in the community or at school? Or are they doing poorly at school so they start to use drugs because, you know, it's a, mechan- a coping mechanism of their things at home? Let's talk for a minute about, you know, drug, alcohol use and, and where you can intervene and help with that. Of course. Um, to answer your question is yes, it has definitely gotten worse during COVID. Um, and as social media and the dangers of social media increase and kids are getting access to social media earlier and earlier, they're getting exposed earlier and earlier, which is why the age is dropping. And COVID, um, the, during COVID, the increase of social media and, you know, 
watching things and playing video games has increased tremendously. For a large population, that ability to communicate online has been very helpful. So what you are seeing is a disproportionality between mental health with boys who play video games and girls who don't. And so you're seeing a lot of girls that were really impacted differently than boys were during COVID because boys are playing video games and they have this whole social world where they're communicating, whereas girls are not. They're usually face-to-face communicators, much more so than boys were. And so we're seeing a lot of difficulties in that regard. Um, And the degree to which it is rampant um, and the access is rampant is in part due to social media because now you can easily communicate about where to get controlled substances, how to get controlled substances. Um, And so I I actually am on, I just joined the board of a organization called I Can Help, which is, you know, promoting, utilizing students to empower other students to promote digital safety. And so I bring that up because it's, it's a kind of part and parcel of the whole thing, right? You see your friends, you know, on Snapchat, smoking a joint when you're, you know, 12 or 13 years old, and you're like, oh, I can do that too. If they can do it, I can do it. And you actually see it. You know what it looks like. And you're like, oh, they look fine. So then they start. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was, is it because they're doing bad in school that they turn to drugs, or do they turn to drugs and then start doing bad in school? And And I would say, there isn't necessarily a correlation. You have those at the higher, higher echelon of academics doing incredibly well in school, still using drugs. And you have those that are struggling using drugs as well, kind of as their little world to escape. Um, And so I come in and understand it. You know, I know that there are resources out there, but parents don't necessarily know how to connect up with them. So if I have a student that I know is really struggling, um, we work with the families to get them into treatment, depending on what their levels of need are, whether that's a local starting with, you know, AA meetings in Hermosa Beach for youth, um, classes that are specific to youth, whether it's getting them into an intensive outpatient program, whether it's connecting them up with someone like Ty and getting wraparound support. Um, Those are all things that that I do. But with respect to segueing this back to school, and this is where there's a little misunderstanding, If if a student is struggling with drug and alcohol use and it's impacting them in the schools, it's the school's responsibility to help them. So I have a student um, I represent a student who was going down that horrible path, and we spent several months helping the parents wonder whether this kid was going to come home at night. Um, and they finally, it finally got to the point where this kid kept getting arrested for little stuff, but then was doing fine in school, finally started to drop off in school. We went to the schools, and we said, this kid needs your help. And the schools jumped in. And it was actually, they finally jumped in after he got arrested for a serious crime. Fortunately, he's a juvenile. And they paid for 18 months of an inpatient, of a facility in Utah. And he came home yesterday. And he's 
amazing. He's doing incredibly well. But it was a matter of getting wow. the schools to jump on board and help out. And that's what the schools are there for. So we, you know, there's a lot of resources for drug and alcohol support. I think the area where I get involved is helping the schools be part of the solution because they're required to, and parents don't know that. If my kid is addicted to marijuana and he, his grades have dropped dramatically, and even if his grades haven't dropped, if the child is, the student is suffering from an issue, emotional issue, substance use, um, depression, anxiety, any of them, it is the school's issue to deal with if it's impacting them in the schools. So it's a matter of bringing them in and noticing them to get assessed and noticing them to provide counseling. And they do, not all of them, but to the extent that we need them to, it is the school's job to do that, come in and help them, the parents understand that they can go to all these outside resources, but you've got this great one in your backyard if you're a public school student. And even if your child is in private school, their home public school is responsible for taking care of them, even if they go to a private school. And people do not know that. Wow. Wow. Um, you, you, amazing information. And, um, Joe, I don't know if you caught, she, she mentioned Ty, and that's our friend Ty Mason from Higher Ground Management mm-hmm. and Your Journey Home. We had Ty on about a couple months ago, too. Um, and I'm yeah. glad you guys are working together, Allie, because I think both of you obviously can make huge differences for families and, um, you know, the child, too. You mentioned, we have about seven minutes left, and you mentioned something that uh, clicked in my head um, regarding, you know, social media, um, TikTok, Snapchat. I don't even know the other platforms that kids are, you know, I hear one, and then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, where'd that come from? Because <laughs> they pop up and they're mm-hmm. created, you know, so so quickly. Just when we figure out one app, another one is there. Um, talk for a minute about, um, you know, the use of social media, uh, and some of the crimes, technical technical crimes that are being committed on that by um, children. And I, I, I know, you know, I hear, because I, I meet with the police department every two weeks, and, you know, we go through different conversations, and, um, you know, the, whether it's a threat or bullying or whatever it might be on whatever platform, you know, how can we help um, parents or, you know, and, and children if they're listening, but parents understand the difference between chatting or saying something, you know, on a social media app and then when it crosses the line into being a criminal act? That's a very good question. And, you know, that is a very gray area, but there's also a matter of doing exactly what you're saying, educating the police so that they understand that that certain things are crimes, right? So if it's an online threat, if it's, you know, stalking or cyberbullying, those are all crimes that um, the police, you know, should be able to address or at least deal with. But it's also a school-related issue because schools have an obligation to address bullying. So it's a matter of, the you know, the best resource there would be the school resource officer, to help involve the school resource officer in eradicating the situation, right? Coming in, having a chat with the person we think is doing this. You're seeing a lot of kids that are creating fake accounts under someone else's name and then sending out all of this information um, as if it came from that person. And it's causing a lot of harm. And it's not just causing harm to them 
emotionally, it's causing financial harm to them. We have kids that, you know, this happens and then they lose their job or they start doing poorly in school. Um, and so, you know, kids are not aware of, you know, they are aware. They know they're being mean, but I don't really think they understand the degree that they can get sued for defamation and their families can get sued for defamation. And they can go down this rabbit hole of it being a lot of problems. Um, and so, you know, you have fraud and you have the use of social media for buying and selling drugs and other illegal substances. And that's, you know, something to keep an eye on. Um, you have a lot of sexting and sending of nudes and kids are using calculator vaults and they're using other social media apps to hide the illicit activity that's going on. And so part of it is making sure that the cops are aware of this. So for instance, there's an app on your phone called a calculator vault. It looks exactly like calculator on your phone. And if you click it, it's a resource where you can hide any picture or any video that you don't want your parents, let's say, to see that you have on your phone. Hmm. Um, calculator You know, the vault. other thing, yep, calculator vault. Yep. Wow. Um, there's also, um, you know, people have a tendency to post when they're on vacation, right? And you can mm -hmm. find anyone's address online. So, oh, look, the family's gone. And then all of a sudden there's burglaries at their house because they're on vacation and they're posting all over social media that no one's home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Like right? it, it so, makes you go, Oh yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, what about, you know, uh, we have uh, three minutes left and I know, um, you know, there's been, I, I know, you know, of, of kids in the, in the community in the past that have gotten in trouble for sharing a picture. So let's say their friend, you know, sends um, a picture, whether it's sexting or whether it's a picture of, you know, a kid in school that did something weird or wrong, and they start sharing the picture via text or social media. Even though the picture didn't generate from their phone, let's just say, it's still considered, um, you know, a harmful act if they're sharing it, correct? Not, not the mere act of sharing Right. It's, it's a matter of whether or not um, there's something in the picture that's going to cause harm to somebody. So the mere sharing of the picture isn't what the issue is. It's what, what the harm comes from sharing of the picture. So, you know, just because you have a picture and you share it doesn't mean it's a problem. It's right. what okay. happened because of it. Are you doing it to harm somebody else, to bully them, to make them look bad, to um, – is it is it the inform is the information in the picture false? Does it falsely represent what that person did? Does it make them look you know is it is it speech essentially that is false and that is a lie and is intended to damage the person's <laughs> reputation? Right, right, right. Wow. So that's kind of but yep. yeah the, the 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 degree to which this goes viral actually my daughter spoke um, maybe about a year and a half ago two years ago now to a hundred lawyers in the South Bay about the dangers of sexting. And it was a question and answer where she was explaining how social media works to these mostly parents, parent lawyers. And she was explaining how, you know, she had, she opened up her phone and she put it on the screen and she's like, I have 1600 followers right now. And it was at that time, do you remember when there was a party in Newport beach and there was swastikas written on all those red cups? <laughs> 
and it went viral. It was like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so she showed how she was never at the party, but within five minutes of it getting posted, she had it hundreds of other people and how quickly it spread. So she was kind of giving a lesson to parents on how, you know, how viral things work in the teenage world. And it was pretty shocking how much information and, and how kids, what the sexting is, you know, how many times she's been asked to send nudes just by random people or students at school and kind of shed light on, on the dangers that are going on out there. So it's an interesting world we have, but all all that said, you know, we're moving in the right direction and the more awareness we have, the more education we have, the more, you know, put it this way. My advice to parents is if your kid is involved in something, don't, try to get help. Don't act like this is an embarrassment and this isn't shameful and don't wait until it's that bad. Try to get help in the early stages so that, you know, we can stop or eradicate what's going on so that, Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't go down this slippery slope and now you're really in dire straits. Yeah. Life happens, mistakes happen, and uh, nip it in the bud before it gets too bad. Um, Joe, Allie, we are out of time. We need to wrap it up. Yes. Yes. Uh, Allison P. Soros, Juvenile Law and Education. Ali, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Soros Law, S-A-R-O-S-L-A-W.com, Soros Law. And uh, if you have a need and you want a compassionate guide, Get in touch with Soros Law. Compassion, Ali, that's the word, compassion. And if we can get compassion more deeply ingrained into all the things that we do that are related to children and to uh, certainly their contact with the criminal justice system, I think um, um, this will have been a great transition, and we're so thankful for it. Um, Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Joe. Um, have a fantastic mm-hmm. weekend. And, and Ellie, thank you for sharing an hour with us. This has been amazing information. Thank you so much. Thank you as well. Thank you for hosting me. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.